Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode of the Other People Podcast is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Right now, you can get a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial over at audibletrial.com slash other people. That's audibletrial.com slash O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. You have to spell other people in the traditional manner. Audibletrial.com slash other people. Get yourself a free audiobook download. These are audiobooks. You can listen to them. Go and get one. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Uh, just here one we go time. again. This is, right. this is other people. Right. This is the other people podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I'm the host of the podcast here in Los Angeles, California. It's very good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. Uh, my guest today is Leslie M. M. Bloom, award-winning journalist, Vanity Fair correspondent, and the author of a new book called Everybody Behaves Badly. It's available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Everybody Behaves Badly is uh, it's a work of literary biography literary history, and it's about Ernest Hemingway, primarily. It's about his early career, the Paris years, uh, the Pamplona years, and it tells this, uh, the true story behind The Sun Also Rises, Hemingway's earliest published novel. It's about how that book came to be. It's about uh, how Hemingway became Hemingway, which is a very fascinating and uh, consequential story in the context of American literature and world literature. So and I know a lot of you out there are probably familiar with the basic elements of the story. Uh, it's Paris in the 1920s. It's Spain. It's Pamplona, the running of the bulls. There's alcohol. There's bad behavior, PTSD, World War I. But what, uh, you know, what you might not know is that uh, Ernest Hemingway wrote The Sun Also Rises in a ferocious two-month push immediately after the Festival of San Fermin in 1925. Uh, he literally began the book on his way out of town and wrote 80,000 words in two months, essentially. And Leslie's book is about that. Another thing that you might not know is how closely the sun also rises hues to actual events and actual people. That's part of the reason why Hemingway 
was so quick to write it. He wanted to put it down on paper while it was all still fresh in his mind. The characters in the novel are very closely based on Hemingway's real-life friends at that time, many of whom would go on to become former friends. <laughs> uh, you know, Those who accompanied him to Spain included uh, his soon-to-be former wife, Hadley, Sweet Hadley, uh, the writer Donald Ogden Stewart, Harold Loeb, the model for the Robert Cohn character, uh, who was in real life the uh, scion of two of the richest uh, Jewish families in New York City. There's Bill Smith, Hemingway's childhood friends from Michigan. And, uh, of course, there was Lady Duff Twisden. And her lover, Pat Guthrie. Lady Duff, the model for Lady Brett Ashley in the novel. So it was a combustible combination. And uh, worth noting is the fact that it was not a happy fiesta in the actual. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was pretty much a disaster. Not that there weren't moments of joy or uh, drunken elation. There was plenty of that. But for the most part, it was a drunken disaster with Lady Duff Twisden uh, at the center of it all. And Hemingway was there, and he knew instantly that he finally had his novel. He started writing The Sun Also Rises on his birthday, July 21st and was finished with a major draft by September 21st. The rest is history. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So, uh, Leslie M.M. M. Bloom. And you're going to find out what the two M's stand for in this episode. But uh, she has done a, a really wonderful job of painting a very vivid portrait of this period, of this chapter in literary history. So if you're a fan of The Lost Generation, if you're a fan of, er uh, of Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Paris, Spain, the 1920s, then Everybody Behaves Badly will essentially function as uh, crack cocaine for you. It's a wonderful book, and uh, I'm very pleased to have had the chance to talk with Leslie about all of it, and uh, I think I think it's time to get started. Here she is, you guys. This is Leslie M.M. M. Bloom, and her book, One More Time, is called Everybody Behaves Badly. 
you know, for listeners who don't who don't know a lot about um, the sun also rises and how it came about, in uh, Hemingway moved to Paris and he started going to to, to Spain and, and watching bullfights. He had been encouraged by Gertrude Stein and another friend, and he fell in love with the whole culture of it. I mean, he he told one friend that it was like being ringside at a war and and nothing was going to happen to you, which I, I always love that description. So then, in in the meantime, he. He's trying to make a breakthrough as a writer, and you know we know now that he's you know considered to be the king of modernist literature and one of the most important American writers of all time. But back then, um, nobody would buy his stories. I mean, people are buying his, his newspaper stories, but he cannot break through. He knows that he needs a novel. The novel was the Holy Grail. He's waiting desperately for material to come in his direction. He's waiting for the inspiration. Um, and he, he would use whatever material, you know, lights the light bulb to to showcase his new his new style um, and basically become the modernist writer after after the war. And it was really so, that explicit. Like first, the first thing that comes to mind is like you know, th- this was a time when uh, writers of fiction were, were the king of American entertainment. I mean, books were the, yeah, were at the center of American mm-hmm. culture, popular culture. And short stories, you could make a living writing mm-hmm, short mm-hmm. stories. So even back then, though, yeah, writers yeah, knew absolutely. that they needed a novel. Yeah, the, the novel was still the holy grail. And, um, you know, for instance, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who would play an important role in, in Hemingway's own rise um, as a mentor and a champion and sort of a kingmaker in a way. I mean, Fitzgerald was an international celebrity um, by the time Hemingway was, was staging his his breakthrough. But even he couldn't sell a short story until he had had his first novel in 1929. I'm sorry, 1920 in this side, this side of paradise. We have to remember this is, you know, decades before television. Film is still a relatively new, um, a new medium, and you know, novels were the popular entertainment. I had one uh, editor tell me that his father's generation at Yale used to line up on the train station when the train coming bearing the, the latest copy of Saturday Evening Post was coming in with the latest Fitzgerald stories. So, I mean, this was, it was, you know, our madman. It was our breaking bad. It I was. Know. It makes me wistful. <laughs> it makes me wistful too, but at least we, at least we have good writing on, you know, on TV now too. But so it, it and, and we have to remember, so these weren't just huge vehicles to become an international celebrity, literary celebrity. They were also, novels were intensely lucrative if they, if they hit the right notes for publishers. And so, you know, we have a, a whole crew of um, young men and women in the 1920s looking to make their names and looking to broker, you know, a, a totally new style and reinvent American literature. And then we also have the publishers with their scouts and their checkbooks ready, um, you know, to 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 capitalize on this. I mean, so yeah, Hemingway is he's he's desperate to make that breakthrough. He just doesn't have the material yet. And later on, he would write. Um, about this period of time, and he would say, "I just I let the pressure build. Um, you know, he wasn't just going to write any old novel for the sake of having one. He needed the right material. And then when it became impossible for him not to write the novel, he would know it would write itself. And that's basically what happened. Because in 1925, he goes to Pamplona with a crew of the most dissolute, glamorously dissolute um, friends, and uh, a lot of bad behavior goes down among them. And Hemingway, um, it's, it's the sort of weekend that most people would rather forget. But Hemingway, on the other hand, documents everything that happened that weekend for, for immortality. And the, the, the result is the sun also rises. So and in, when you talk about modernist literature and you talk about the Hemingway style, which is, uh, you know, so obvious, so often, uh, like poorly imitated, sort of fools you into thinking it's easy. Yes. This was something that he was explicitly trying to do. I'm going to 
uh, be the leading voice of this new style. I, I don't feel like there's any, are there any parallels today where we're going to change the language? We're going to get rid of adjectives and modifiers. We're going to write in simple declarative sentences. We're going to use repetition. Like uh, this was something that was explicit at the outset. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it was something that he, I mean, Hemingway wasn't alone in this. I mean, a lot of, a lot of writers and, and, um, you know, Poets were looking to really reinvent English language after World War One, and even beforehand. I mean, Gertrude Stein, who had set up shop in, in Paris, you know, well well before um, Hemingway, had been doing uh, language experiments, uh, not very lucrative ones. I mean, you try re reading a Gertrude Stein book yeah. today, and, and it's like, okay, you might as well, you know, I mean, it, it's it's like wading through a jungle um, without a machete, and. But you know, Ezra Pound, who was you know also a leader of the modernist movement over over in Europe, um, you know they they'd all been trying to make these breakthroughs, but they weren't they certainly weren't commercially successful. You know, and Hemingway comes along, and he he turned up in Paris, which was really at, at the time the sort of the crucible of modernism and and innovation. Um, he turned up with certain goals in mind, and you see that evidence of that in letters from his his first wife Hadley to him, where she's talking about how. The, the the simplicity that he's looking for, she said, it's as simple as chain, fine chain mail, the rep repetitions. But he gets mentored by these modernists who are already, uh, you know, have already been working on these experiments, and he sees a way to achieve what they want to achieve, um, in terms of of stripping down language and and. Uh, Making it making a new vernacular, but also making it commercially successful because right. he, he wants what Gertrude Stein is doing with the experimentalism, but he also wants what Fitzgerald has, which is international fame. And uh, The Sun Also Rises is really um, the first commercially successful novel that brings modernism to the masses. It really was the first. I mean, you yeah. know, there, were n there was nobody else who maybe wrote like a lesser novel in the same mode that got published. I'm, I don't, I can't think of one. I'm just, not, no, yeah, not on this level. I mean, we have, you know, Fitzgerald, for instance, you know, who was a hugely successful novelist. I think he had three, three down by the time, um, by the time the sun also rises came out. But I mean, he wasn't, and he, he, he was interested in new form and he thought that he had achieved a lot of new form with Gatsby. But I mean, a lot of people still considered him to be a romantic and belonged to, you know, the sensibilities of the previous century. Um, you have uh, James Joyce with Ulysses, and that was you know an intensely influential work, especially among writers. But I mean, it wasn't even published in the states in novel form and in book form until the 1930s. So what we're talking the, the the distinguishing factor is commercial success. I mean, Hemingway is he was commercially successful from the very from the moment The Sun Also Rises came out because it did well. Yeah, it it it, it wasn't you know a, it wasn't like a sensational blockbuster breaking records, but it did it did incredibly well, and it did well because it drew on an ingenious formula. And Hemingway articulates this in his own letters. I mean, it's amazing how how strategic he was. I mean, he said to one of his editors, "There is nothing in my writing that somebody with a high school educate without high school education can't relate to," but at the same time. There's, you know, there was a lot in the style that would titillate the, the, the high-minded critics. So he's, he's hitting high-low. And then, as if that's not enough, he says, you know, for you know, the less high-minded readers, there's also, quote, a lot of dope about high society in it. And that's always interesting, end quote. So he's really he's firing on all, all of his cylinders. And it ended up uh, to be an intoxicating formula. The book sold well. It was um, received you know, there, it's traditionally it's been said that the book got mixed reviews, but I revisited those reviews and they weren't that mixed. I mean, they were pretty rhapsodic about the, the style and the fact that a new master had arrived and had achieved 
what other writers had been trying to achieve and had not. Um, the, the main criticism that people seemed to have uh, for about uh, the novel was that they didn't like the characters. You know that they, they found the world to be depressing or dissolute or uh, morally bankrupt. Um, and Hemingway himself could have cared less about that as a as a criticism. He said, "You want likable characters? Are there any likable characters in the Bible?" You know. So um, so he just didn't see that as a and I mean, in my opinion, rightfully so, didn't really see that as a criteria for for. Um, valid criticism so yeah the book the book it, it crushed it and so it, like paris because you know the sun also rises i think people think of that book and they think of pamplona and mm -hmm. they think of the running of the bulls but a good portion of it takes place in paris and hemingway himself said and i think you uh point to this in the book that you can't really understand pamplona unless you first understand paris and you know paris in the 1920s uh i think people uh who are fans of American literature, mm -hmm. you know, they tend to have at least some understanding of it, but uh, it was like the Brooklyn of its day. It was an, it was like a remote artist colony where most young, really uh, ambitious writers made a trek to in the twenties. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were, there were a few, you know, colonies around. Uh, I mean, people were in, you know, Carmel, people were in, you know, they were in New York. I mean, there was a movement in New York, but I mean, Paris, as Gertrude Stein famously said, Paris was where the 20th century was. I mean, it really was about reinvention. And the curious thing about um, the, the creative colony in Paris was, uh, the creative American colony, was that they were all up to such American things. It's not like they were there to sit at the knees of, of Parisian masters. They were in Paris reinventing American forms of art and uh, you know in, in the case of the writers I mean everybody was there to broker you know their you know their big magnum opus and then bring it back and sell it to you know an American commercial public with an American publisher and there's this great line from um, an editor and poet and writer called Archibald McLeish who was you know very much in that at the center of that community the in crowd of that community he said um, that he never met an American there who wasn't consumed with American plans. Um, some, that's a, a, a paraphrase, um, but it, but it's true. I mean, it was a, a totally American I experiment over there. And, and rent was cheap post-war. Yeah, it was it was incredibly cheap, and it kept getting cheaper. It started to get more expensive um, in the mid twenties, but by that time, you know, the the bohemian life in Paris had been so richly publicized that it did nothing to stem the flow of of um, Americans going over there. And by, you know, one account, there were, you know, 5,000 Americans turning up in America, I mean, turning up in Paris every week by, you know, by the mid-1920s. I mean, you can imagine what that what that must have felt like. And a lot of the early, the pioneering expats started to really take exception. You know, they felt that the whole experiment had become um, overly commercial. They couldn't get seats at their favorite cafes on, uh -huh. you know, Boulevard Montparnasse. Um, but... I mean, it was a really exceptional time. I mean, yes, there was a, a lot of people were there to party, um, but and there was a lot of debauchery. But at the same time, people were there with you know very high-minded goals, and it, it was you know Picasso had reinvented art. You know, a lot of the writers were there; they were to reinvent the English language. And you know, if if that got mixed in with a little bit of naughtiness, then so be it. Well, so what about Hemingway? Because Hemingway comes to. Paris in the early 20s. At the end of 21. The end of yeah. 21 with his uh, new wife, Hadley. Yes. I love Hadley. Yeah, Hadley's great. She's so sweet. She's a, a really, really gentle soul. Yeah. I mean, like, so shockingly unfilled, like, totally unfilled with rancor. You, you can hardly believe. She doesn't fit in with the crowd. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, in, in the way yeah. that, like, there's so, like, you know, everybody behaves badly. Mm -hmm. Like, 
Hadley doesn't behave badly. Well, she's she's a respite for him, you know. But later on, she'll become a problem for him. Yeah. You know? So, um, you know, Hadley when they when they first turn up, I mean, she it's apparent that she's been an early confidant of uh, of Hemingway's, and he talks to her about his writing and what he wants to achieve, and she's like, you know, a a, a coach in a way, but a coach that doesn't have a lot of expertise to apply. It's more like go get him, Tiger. Yeah, she's supportive. You know? Yeah, I mean, like literally, you know, supportive, at least, you know, financially speaking, she, you know, they went over there largely courtesy of a modest trust fund that she had from her family. And he at first was um, working to support them with, with journalism. And unfortunately, he was a really good journalist. So he started to get so many assignments that he couldn't really work on his, on his, what he considered to be his real writing. But, you know, Hadley's always there in the corner. And, you know, she, there came a time when, you know, the trust fund was mismanaged. They really didn't have any dough at all, although people think that um, Hemingway exaggerated his poverty later. I mean, they, they were poor. Yeah. Um, and, you know, she was cheerful about it. I mean, she's going all over the city. They have holes in their shoes. They're cold. She's looking for food bargains. I mean, like, half of Paris is there partying their faces off and shopping at Chanel. And, you know, this is this is Hadley's existence. She has to go to a bathhouse. There was a rumor going around that their son, Bumby, um, their infant son, Bumby, had to sleep in a dresser drawer because they couldn't afford a crib. True or um, false? <clears throat> Unclear. 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 Um, but, you know, Hadley, she's cheerful throughout the entire thing, and she, she sees... Not a complainer. Never. I mean, it, by all accounts. Yeah. You know, and um, Hemingway felt guilty about this, to his credit. Um, you know, he <laughs> said, you know, that he would later write in a movable feast, um, you know, that he was getting enormous satisfaction out of his... Is writing, and so you know you can tolerate poverty if you know that it's really in service of something. And he said, you know, poverty is much harder on somebody, you know, like Hadley, who's not getting the satisfaction out of the writing, but she was getting, apparently, getting an enormous amount of satisfaction in supporting him, and and, and she really did believe in his genius. And she she had been, you know, she had supported that genius and that vision since before they came to Europe. Okay, so what? Okay, this is a question that I, I leave your book asking myself, and which I've been asking myself about. Hemingway and people like him, though there aren't that many. What was it about him that inspired people to rally to his cause? I mean, yes, he's a good writer, but it's like he shows like Sherwood Anderson. He meets Sherwood Anderson. A, he's very lucky in his connections, but then B, he meets these people and they become his champion. And like in the face of bad behavior on his part, he can be insulting them. He can be rude to them. He can punch them in the face. And liter- act- liter- literally, by literally, the way. Yeah. He, li- he literally punched one of his um, his earlier benefactors. And it makes him love them more. What was it about this guy? Well, I mean, that was one of the, <laughs> the biggest challenges for me in, in researching this book is trying to figure out how the hell he inspired this kind of almost slavish devotion among his, his betters. And not his betters, but his um, you know, people who were in positions of authority and... I ransacked sources, you know, anybody who had, had known him well, who was still alive, you know, I grilled them on, on this, this question of his charisma is, was the closest way that I could really. His shy smile. He smiles. He listens quietly. He smiles shyly. This is what I'm thinking. Like, what was it about that fucking smile? I know. (laughs) I mean, it's like, think about how many people smile shyly and they, you know, and they, and they don't get, you know, championed by the most important writers and benefactors in, 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 in all time. And so, you know, I, I, there were a few people who had interesting insights for me, and one of them was a friend of his from later years, but knew him incredibly well. And he said that Hemingway was... Was this Hodgner? 
No, this was somebody named Joseph Dreyer, who unfortunately he knew from Cuba. Okay. Um, and um, he said that Hemingway listened. He was, he was like the most attentive, flattering listener ever. So you could be sitting across the, the table and all of a sudden, you know, this, uh, this attention would be wholly on you. And he was interested in everything you had to say. And I'm a he, good listener. I don't get that kind of response. But there was something, there was just something about the way that he did it. It was uh-huh. just, it was flattering. And, you know, and it was combined, I guess, with the fact that he was, you know, he was pretty gorgeous in those days and he was intense and handsome and he was a strange person then to be a writer. I mean, writers were considered to be very, you know, dusty, bespectacled creatures. And he's this, you know, masculine guy who'd grown up and, um, you know, hunting and fishing. I mean, that, that was not a persona. That was the real deal. I mean, there were, you know, weeks on end in his childhood where he wasn't sleeping under a roof, for God's sake. So, I mean, he's, he was an unusual creature. So he was a fascinator because he's, you know, he's a novelty. But he's also, um, he knows how to, to flatter. And it's not, the caliber of the flattery it must have been pretty incredible, too. Because if you flatter somebody, people know if you're being fulsome and they know that you want something from them. So yes. he, he must have gotten the 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 tightrope uh, walk exactly right. He was shrewd. He, he was he was shrewd, and, he, but, and there was a quietness to, to the way he would listen and to the way he would flatter also. So when you hear Gertrude Stein and, and Sherwood Anderson, both you know very important writers at the time who both really threw behind Hemingway, they both talk about, oh, and, and Ford Maddox Ford, they all, they all describe him sort of sitting at their feet and listening. And so it was, it was flattering to be treated as, as a mentor by him, even though you know he had plans with, with you know all these people to just leave them in the dust, you know from from the very beginning, and, and tended to have like falling outs or what's it like patricide or matricide with all of his like you know mentors. He tended to uh, stab them in the back once he got to a certain point. Yeah, I mean it was um, not easy to be a Hemingway uh, benefactor. You know, I mean it was you, and it was astonishing because you know it was pretty. Hemingway's betrayals of many of his benefactors were, pr- were pretty public things. I mean, he you know wrote a story uh, af- not long after he and Gertrude Stein essentially went their separate ways for the New Yorker called my break with Gertrude Stein, um, you know, and, and made made light of it. And you know, in one of his in his his uh, published novella, which came out just before Sun Also Rises, he's satirizing Gertrude. He's um, sending you know little barbs in the direction of F. Scott Fitzgerald. I mean, these are people who are really still very actively involved in his career and and, and in championing him. But he's, um, you know, so it's well known, you know, that he's he's not really good at repaying favors with with gratitude. But these people are still lining up to help him. Well, yeah, that's the thing. They love him anyway. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about the Joan Didion quote, which I'm going to butcher, where she's like a writer's always selling somebody out. Yeah. And I mean, you talk yeah. about him not being kind to his benefactors. Well, you think about the sun also rises and the portraits that he paints of his friends, uh, his yes. quote unquote friends. They're not exactly flattering either. No, but he's so Hemingway, you know, again, he's he's a hell of a reporter and he's to and, you know, what's at the base, the base of being a, a good reporter is being a good observer and being able to report on the most important and telling details. You don't have to paint a full portrait of somebody, but if you if you get the details right and if you observe them correctly, then um, then you're going to you're going to have a really good portrait. So Hemingway, for, you know, these poor bastards who went along in 1925 to Pamplona with him. Um, you know, we have, you know, Harold uh, Loeb, who is one of, uh, he's, he's an heir to two great Jewish fortunes. He's a playboy in, um, in Paris. Um, he has every 
every um, advantage that Hemingway doesn't have. And, and, you know, he's Hemingway's, quote, tennis friend, which is how he describes him in The Sun Also Rises. So he gets written up as Robert Cohn, which is probably one of the cruelest portraits um, in modern literature, and it scarred Harold Loeb for the rest of his life. Um, also, it should also be said that uh, Hemingway was anti-Semitic. He had, a, he had a lot, I mean, he made a lot of anti-Semitic remarks, and uh, you see it in his books. I mean, there was a lot of that there, right? Well, I mean, a lot, yes. I mean, Harold... Uh, sorry, Robert Cohn in in The Sun Also Rises is the result of a lot. I mean, is the target of a lot of um, unfortunate and deeply uncomfortable anti-Semitic slurs that come, you know, from the characters, from the main character Jake Barnes, who was loosely based on Hemingway himself, from a character Bill Gorton, who was based primarily on um, the humor writer Donald Ogden Stewart, and Donald Ogden Stewart later. Um, was asked about, you know, were you this anti-Semitic in, in real life? Was Hemingway being a reporter or was he being, you know, a fiction writer? And Donald Stewart, who was, you know, was a great champion of the common man, for God's sake, I mean, he was blacklisted from Hollywood when he eventually, eventually moved here. Um, he said very shamefacedly, you know, I, I had no, no doubt that I was probably basically anti-Semitic in those days, as was Hemingway, but it was a form of social snobbism. It was not the kind of, um, you know, deep-rooted anti-Semitism that would give rise to Nazism later. Um, and I, I believe that also. I mean, I don't, I don't think that Hemingway was, was a hateful anti-Semite. I think he was at heart a humanist, but I think that this definitely was a badge of the times. It's a horrible badge of the times. Um, I interviewed a few experts on anti-Semitism of this period, and they say that it tended to be um, worse among Americans, surprisingly, than among British, um, and that um, after, especially after World War II, I mean, a lot of the British anti-Semitism that had been social snobbishness receded, whereas it surged on strong in America um, in a form of sort of like country club so, you know, snobbishness. Weird. So. Um, I mean, I think Hemingway, in some ways, is being a report is is really being a reporter. Um, you know, that said, I mean, if you look back in Hemingway's letters and, and his you know, biographies of his very early life, which I, I don't really document in my book, um, I mean, there's definitely uh, you know he and his friends they give each other you know Jewish nicknames. He called himself Hemingstein, you know, sometimes, and, and there there's definitely a caricature of what a Jewish person is, and it always involves money and. Um, you know, so it's it's definitely, you know, this is somebody who is of a certain time, and um, it, but, but you know, unfortunately, the the portrayals in the Sun Also Rises do make people incredibly uncomfortable today. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you talk about, um, you know, the, the, the how quickly Hemingway started writing the Sun Also Rises in the wake of the trip to Pamplona, like the mm -hmm. entire novel. I think it had been stewing in him for some time, but then it, it crystallized very quickly. Yeah. And it came out of him in a burst that I've read about him in the past. Like, he was almost embarrassed by how fast he wrote the book because yeah. he almost didn't trust it. He was like, well, if, I, if it came out of me this fast, is it any good? Uh, and, you know, it, he obviously is, a, like you said, a hell of a reporter, great mm -hmm. eye for detail, mm -hmm. uh, steel trap mind, great memory uh, or recall, or mm -hmm. at least he was taking good notes. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing to have that, and it's one thing to be able to report that, but it's another thing entirely to write a novel like the sun also rises like what's the bridge you know like wh where does the artistry come in like what is it that made this book uh you know elevated beyond just 
oh God, reportage. Yeah. Well, well, so so many things. I mean, the book really is. Well, first of all, it's excellent reportage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so that 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 needs to be commended. But second of all, you know, it was rendered in Hemingway's you know his this language that he had been working on. I mean, there there are so many elements. You know, the, there are repetitions in the language. There's a stream of consciousness element to it that's stripped of adjectives. He's playing with an iceberg theory, what he calls the iceberg theory, where he is, um, you know allowing giving people just enough information and allowing them to surmise the rest of the information for instance about characters you know ironically he originally had um, a lot more background on um, some of his characters um, which F. Scott Fitzgerald who's you know the more you know talk the more long-winded of the two on papers um, advised him to cut but I mean so all all of these things contrived to make uh, the Sun Also Rises into a very powerful work of modernism as opposed to just a bitchy Romano clay. And then there are a couple of incredibly, you know, shrewd elements that Hemingway incorporated. And the first one, you know, is the name of the book. So first he's initially considering to, he want, he's going to call it Fiesta because that's, you know, what the, what the, um, festival in Pamplona is called. It's called the, the, the San Fermin Fiesta. In, and, and then he decides he doesn't want to use a foreign word. So he, he calls the Bible for possible titles, and um, he comes across a passage, and uh, in it is the phrase, the sun also rises, and it's, you know, about the sun also rises, and uh, it, it's, you know, about regeneration, um, the earth abideth forever. And that seems pretty profound to him. So suddenly the book is called The Sun Also Rises instead of Fiesta or The Lost Generation. Much better title. Yes. I yeah. Think. No, absolutely. And what it does is it imbues the book with you know, a total gravitas that it might not have had otherwise. And the other element of gravitas is um, a quote which he purloined from Gertrude Stein. And Gertrude Stein had apparently said to Hemingway, um, recounted something that happened to her at her garage where her famous car was being repaired. And the garage um, manager said it wasn't quite ready yet. His workers were useless because they were, quote, all a lost generation. And Gertrude Stein in turn said to Hemingway, well, you know, that's what you are. You and your contemporaries are all a lost generation, you know, ruined by the war. Hemingway later said that he had been kind of, you know, pissed off by this evaluation. He had walked home from the meeting thinking, you know, screw you, Gertrude. Like, you know, your generation is as lost as mine is. And who, who has the right to call anybody else lost? Um, but he, he the, the phrase resonates with him. And he originally writes an entire introduction to the book. Um, in which it's called The Lost Generation, and he's talking about in this introduction about how they have lost all the institutions in the world that, that guided them before, anything from religion to communism to um, movies, you know, nascent movies. Um, so he, in a perfect act of Hemingway uh, concision, he does away with the entire quite obvious introduction and condenses it into six words you are all a lost generation and he uses that um, at the top of the book attributed to Gertrude Stein um, which adds an additional little bit of gravitas because everybody then knows who Gertrude is so he's you know advertising his affiliation with her exactly um, I see so, the same kind of thing happen on Twitter in a weird way you know where people I always call it co-branding you know but, totally you but know. it's it's like a co-opted co-branding this person isn't blurbing yeah. you know you or anything it's just you know you're but you're, you're advertising the fact that you are of a of a and in, operating in a strata where this person's your comrade, yes. you know, and so you know we have this, you know, these these um, small but profoundly effective elements that then really elevate the work from again just being um, a book about high society behaving badly to a work of of um, 
modernist fiction, the ultimate breakthrough in modernist fiction, and um, establishes Hemingway as the voice of the lost generation. And um, it's also a por- you know a portrait of the, the sort of demoralizing effects that modern warfare has on the generation that has to to follow it. Well, well I was going to say because I think uh, like you talk about the decisions that Hemingway made. Um, you know, uh, using the uh, epigraph—is that right? Epigraph. I always get epigram. I always and get epigraph. epigraph and epitaph. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I think I think epigraph is the correct. Yeah, one. yeah. So the line from Gertrude, uh, you know, that's one thing. But then I think another decision when we talk about the transition from reportage uh, to artistry and to the novelization mm-hmm. is the decision to make Jake impotent. Is yes. that correct? Yeah, he's absolutely. impotent. He's wounded from the war in his groin. Well, basically, he, I mean, Hemingway would explain later, like, the exact nature of the impotence of the main character, and that was that, I don't even know if I can say this on air, but... You uh, can say it. Anything's, okay. anything's fair game. I mean, the, the Jake is, uh, supposedly had his penis shot off in the war, but as Hemingway was very careful to explain later on, you know, his the, the character's testicles were still intact, so he's capable of feeling all of the urges of a man but just un- totally unable to consummate so jake barnes cannot have um an affair with the object of his affections lady brett ashley who was also based on a real life character um interestingly who hemingway was uh, reportedly trying to to bed and had been held at well, arm's length and let's talk about it. it's lady duff yes and how do we it's like lady duff what twisden twisden i never twisden yeah okay so lady duff twisden who uh, as far as the historical record goes I mean, she's she's obviously mentioned in a lot of Hemingway biographies, but like, mm. how much is known about her? She's sort of a, a mysterious figure to me. Well, she's she's a difficult figure to reconstruct because, um, unlike everybody else who had any affiliation with Hemingway, um, she really didn't leave you know a memoir. There were not a lot of letters left by her. Um, she inspired jealousy in a lot of women, and her um, her last husband um, outlived her, and. Um, his subsequent wife reportedly threw away a lot of his uh, effects that pertained to her, which might have helped us reconstruct her in her own words. Thanks for that. Which was, like, really <laughs> frustrating as yeah. a biographer. So, you know, in recreating Lady Duff, um, I really had to rely a lot on testimony of, of her peers and, you know, the very few photos that um, exist of her. She had a not, like, like Hemingway, she had a charisma thing happening. She had an interesting style. Yeah. She wasn't yes. classically beautiful, and yet men swarmed to her. So, I mean, that's a, a perfect, perfect point. Um, you know, I always thought of. Um, so, I'll just tell your readers, your listeners, really quickly about um, her. So, Lady Duff Twiston was a was a thirty something aristocrat who turned up in um, Paris in the mid nineteen twenties, where Hemingway met her, and she was there um, waiting out a divorce from her aristocratic husband back in the UK. They had a kid together. The kid was back with the with the ex husband, um, and Hemingway reportedly becomes infatuated by her, and half of Paris is infatuated by her, and Donald Ogden Stewart. <clears throat> The humorist who became Hemingway's friend and also a character in the book said to her, well, it was, it was hard to not be in love with her. She just played her cards so well. So she's, you know, this lithe, almost panther-like creature, totally curveless, as was, you know, the fashion of the times. Um, it was re- reported, you know, I mean, she had a, a very chiseled face um, and, and her hair was cropped into this, uh, what they called the Eaton crop. It was like a boy's haircut. It was extremely racy, very sexy, um, almost scandalous. But she also had this element of good breeding to her, which kept her from, you know, having sort of a trollopy air around her because a lot of women who were incorporating more flappery flourishes, you know, there there could be something 
I don't know, discrediting about it in a way, but she, Lady Duff was just, she was the quality. I mean, she wore tweeds. She um, wore, you know, these jersey um, jersey ensembles. She didn't wear a lot of makeup, or if any, and it was actually rumored, and this added kind of a feral appeal to her that she didn't she didn't even bathe regularly. But she... Um, Hot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, but I mean, it didn't... It, everywhere that she went, I mean, she had men flock to her. It's funny, because, like, I look at pictures, and there's, like you say, there's very few photos of her, and there's the famous one in Pamplona where yep. they're at the table. Like, that's the one I most commonly associate with her, but I think yes. I've seen a couple others. Um, I don't, I don't see it. Like I, I want, I wish. But I, bet, I, I bet you would see it if you had seen her in person. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm just. That's why I think maybe some of the mystery is that there's just not as much photographic evidence. Whereas with Hemingway, you see those photos of him when he's young and he's like, you know, strapping and yeah. you know, he's a good-looking guy. But I think you know everybody knows you know a woman. I mean, she, she was the real hook for me into writing the entire book. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think everybody knows a woman you know like that who has like a, a sort of an unspecified allure, and they usually all belong into that category. You know, tall, thin, formidable, with the, the air of good breeding or the rumor of good, good breeding surrounding them, um, and uh, there's an aloofness to them, which is obviously catnip. Um, so she, her allure made all the sense in the world to me, the way that people, you know, talked about her. And I always thought of her, Lady Duff and Hemingway as being two sides to the same coin. You know, she had the ultimate female allure, um, and he had in, in many ways the ultimate masculine allure at the yeah, time. I want to talk to you because like gender, especially when it comes to Hemingway, um, it seems to rise, uh, in my mind when I think about him with the benefit of all these years. Uh, when I reread his work mm-hmm. and I, I read the interactions between men and women and the way that um, like love and sex are depicted in his work, it can seem a little dated to say the least. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, a lot of times I feel like Hemingway is a writer for um, straight white guys. Like, huh. like you talked earlier about how he was an odd creature in his day because he was masculine and he was a hunter and a fisherman mm-hmm. and he wasn't kind of the effete. Uh, like feminized mm-hmm. man that many people would associate with uh, the arts or whatever. And so I think like, you know, like one way that I've always made sense of his appeal, uh, and I, I'm in that club when I was a young man, like when I was a teenager, it's like sensitive young uh, dudes can read him and feel okay about being sensitive because he's talking about like drinking whiskey and like lion hunting and yep. you know what I'm saying? He sort yes. of gives you permission. Uh, I'm curious, like, like what's his appeal like to you as a woman and like, were there blocks there because of the macho stuff and because of maybe some of the misogyny or like that, just the dated nature of mm. the depictions? Like, did you ever feel any of that? I mean, I don't think Hemingway is a misogynist. I've never seen evidence of his of his misogyny. Maybe and, I overstated and, it. Um, but I mean, I get I I love this question. Yeah. Because I I feel like I have an unusual answer to it. I mean, I love I love Hemingway. I mean, I think he can be a real shit sometimes, but you know, at the same time, he's. He, you know, he was as much an inspiration to me as he might have been to you as a teenager, you know, and I, I became a correspondent. Yeah. You know, I mean, Hemingway's a war correspondent. I mean, that sounded great to me. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I... I his world is so intoxicating. The, like, his life seems so big. It really was. Because it, it was big. I mean, he, he dared to have it be big. And think, think about think about w- women, like, the, the kinds of treats we get to look forward to. I mean, you're, you're told, like, self-sacrifice is, is you know, what, what you have in store for you. And I just was, like, not having any of that. Like, I wanted to be a war reporter. I wanted to go abroad. I wanted to write. I wanted to have artistic goals. Um and if those are all, you know, traditionally masculine um, aspirations and attributes, then I was like, fine, then I'll, I'll take it. You know, there was no no block for me by the fact that he was um, 
Now I feel like yeah. a dick for calling him a misogynist. I'm no, sorry, no, no, Ernest. no, 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 because no, a, a lot of a lot of people really do think that that he he was. I just don't see really see the evidence of that. I think that he saw um, women. Well, I think I think he had complicated feelings about female writers. Um, and, and what about his sexuality? Because that's always up for debate too. Like he liked to, he liked to dress up like a woman in bed or whatever. You know, you you read these things. Like, did you come across anything like that in your research? No, I mean, yeah, yes. I mean, I came across the accusations, and some of them were actually you know fairly amusing. Like Truman Capote called him like the you know the biggest queen that ever came down the pike or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, I this I feel like during this period of time, they're really. And you have to remember my, my, my book really documents 1921 to 1928. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not getting into the weird stuff later on, but, um, I mean, he, he seemed pretty straightforward, like a, a young, um, an unhappily married, young, young married man who then leaps into bed with an heiress. I mean, it, it all seemed pretty hetero to me. Yeah. Um, but it's also like a very demonstrative masculinity, like. I'm going to hunt lions. I'm going to go to the bullfights. I'm going to box. I'm going to knock you out. It's like, dude, like, you know, like thou protest. What is it? Too much? Do yeah, you know what I'm I, I, I think maybe later in life there was a lot of protesting too much. But at this stage in the game, it's just who he was. Like, I because I, yeah. I really I really did look into to the persona and try to figure out whether I thought it was, you know, authentic or not. And I really just, I do. I think it was just, you know, he was raised in a, a really physical way. I mean, his, his family spent um, summers in the country and... You know, he um, was just constantly involved in physical activity. I mean, boxing was a huge thing. It wasn't just Hemingway. You know, at the times... Uh, yeah, it was a major American sport. Yeah. Just like novels were a major American art. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he... I mean, Hemingway was... Um, he 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 wasn't. I mean, people make such a big deal about him being, you know, having defective eyesight or you know having been shrimpy and was overcompensating or anything. I just I didn't see any of it. He was just like he was always doing these adventures when he was really young in the in the presence of you know other guy friends. So it's, he was always in a crowd doing it. Like my point is that is that the crowd was doing it. I mean, yeah. I mean Hemingway was. Um, he was he could be a little crazy, you know. I mean with his with his he was insanely competitive. If there's anything, you know, I, I don't think it was an act of his. I don't think his aggressively masculine persona was an act of deception, but I think it was really more of a result of comp, like almost pathological competition. See, that's the thing. It's like, do you have to be that way to succeed at his level? No, I don't think so. But I just think it's who he was. Yeah, you know, and it it's, didn't. It's, it it's, didn't hurt. No, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I was one of the things that really surprised me. Sorry about the. Um, about you know the research was how patently ambitious he was and how patently comp competitive he was and with people you wouldn't even expect so I mean like he's he's pissed off like when Anita Luz has a bestseller the gentle you know gentlemen prefer blondes and it's like you know he could even be resentful of that it's like why be resentful of your competitors who are trying to do what you are trying to do and, and pulling it off but I mean like these are irrelevant titles Just anybody to anybody who's yeah. succeeding <laughs> so I mean he's he's um, you know, and so Sherwood Anderson would say, you know, later on, he doesn't just want to, he, he wants the field, you know, for, for himself. And I mean, it's unclear to me whether he saw this attribute in himself because he's not an unintrospective person, but I mean, I, I never really saw a lot of evidence of uh, repentance or remorse in, in his correspondences, um, which are bountiful and very uh, insight giving. Um, so for somebody who does really look at the interiors of, 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 of the human mind for his literature, he seemed to not really acknowledge the unpleasantness of his, the extreme competitiveness of his own nature. And he didn't think twice about 
outing his friends or putting them on paper in The Sun Also Rises in the way that he did. He didn't care what effect it would have on those relationships. Oh, God, no. I mean, he, he could be, a, he was a little bit naughty, actually, about it. I mean, he didn't tell any of his friends that he was putting them into The Sun Also Rises. And, um, but he, he teased them about it while he was writing it and even while he was pitching it. And so he would write to them and say, oh, well, you know, I'm pitching this novel and it's called The Sun Also Rises. Can you help me with this? Can you help me with that? But not tell them, you know, that they were about to be basically put up on a billboard, um, you know, on two continents and, and, and skewered. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, he, and years later, he was talking to a friend of his who, you know, had been peppering him with questions about that era. And he said, you know, if you had it to do over again, would you, would you be softer on these people? And Hemingway reportedly answered, oh, hell no. You know, so it was, it was, he, they were all fair game. I mean, to be fair, I mean, Hemingway's portrait um, gets a lot, his, his the, nasty portraits of these people gets they get a lot of attention because the book was so profoundly successful and remains so important but um the colony in paris where hemingway you know wrote part of this book and you know conceived his his style it was a glass house in which everybody threw stones you know so i mean everybody was writing everybody else up too so i mean he wasn't alone in this mindset i mean they knew he was a writer i mean it's like they didn't know who they were on vacation with yeah exactly and i think you know I mean, look at how many writers, um, you know, use their most personal relationships as, as fodder. I mean, everybody from Joan Didion, you know, Truman Capote wrote, you know, Answered Prayers. And, I mean, it's writers are dangerous company to keep. <laughs> you know, and Hemingway was a little bit more obvious in his dangerous attributes than, than many people were. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, sit at this cafe table with him at your own risk. Yeah. Well, and what about money? Because, like, I this is another part of it is that, you know, writers have to survive, and Hemingway was a shrewd writer. He was strategic, as you've said. Uh, he really had a plan, and he executed his plan, like, with a kind of astonishing uh, success. Yes. Um, but, you know, he also had to get by, especially in those early years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Hadley had a trust fund. Pauline Pfeiffer, his second wife, had mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess by the time he got to, what was it, Martha Gellhorn, who was third, mm-hmm. um, you know, she had her own career uh, yeah. as, a, as a journalist and as a yes. writer. And, like... Not coincidentally, I think, was maybe that was the most contentious marriage of the four or whatever. Like, she didn't take his shit. Oh, yeah, and she could not have been a less docile wife. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, I I don't know. It's like, it almost seems to me, and like, maybe I just have like, maybe this is just my cynicism um, shining through here, but it's like, it seems like there's just a financial calculation involved and like, writing was the thing and he had to find a way to keep advancing that cause or am Mm. I... I don't know. No, I mean, I think, listen, I mean, there's there's been a ton of speculation over, you know, the utility of his marriages, you know, and how they how they supported his career. And, you know, there was a his one of his nicknames for Hadley and their, their whole group of friends uh, called her Hash. And um, there, were, there had been some speculation that there, it had something to do with her um, being a, a, a cash cow. For him, although one of the one of their close friends would deny that. I mean, look, Had, Hadley's trust fund, it was modest yeah it was, it was modest i mean it was i mean I, I can't remember what it is in today's money but i mean it wasn't like they were living lavishly even when the when the trust fund was strong um you know and she she offered it up and and that was that i mean and for a long time he really was working to support them also as a journalist but he just he could not he could not do it um so i mean they they he, he couldn't do both um, well, and, then, and, and it should be said, too, that, you know, yes, maybe he was living off of his wife's money in those early marriages, but he was an extraordinarily hard worker. 
Oh yeah, I mean he was he was almost a pathological worker. I mean people were kind of scared of him in in Paris, you know, because they they were again they were there to work, but they were also there to party. I mean Hemingway's work ethic was insa- it was it was nuts, um, and he he was completely single minded about his his goals, um, and he and he he met them. Um, but I think you know with with you know the the money thing. Um, there, you know, there did come a point where his his money, his writing, did become a lucrative uh, venture, and he he did also reward Hadley, by the way, for supporting him in all those all those years. Because in many ways, the sun also rises was as much her her baby as his. I mean, she had supported him while he he wrote it and developed the style that he was showcasing in the book, and she was you know on the trips that inspired you know inspired the story. I mean, she um, she supported him relentlessly and he dedicated the book to her um i mean there's a, a whole backstory to that also which will i'll let your readers your, your listeners read in the book um but he also assigned all the royalties to her hmm. so he um it wasn't like he was paying a debt but he was acknowledging you know the enormous role that she had played in launching him and in, in that book well and too you know you read you read hemingway in his later years um and I think in a movable feast, there's a mm-hmm. great amount. He has a great amount of remorse and affection. It feels like for Hadley. Like oh yeah, uh, she was the good one, uh, or that was the marriage that mm-hmm. he should have made work, or he he regretted it. I think that it ended. Oh yeah, I mean, well, he, in in a movable feast, he he was like practically on the cross over it, you yeah. know. And then he, but he didn't really blame himself that much for the the dissolving of that marriage. He blamed his second wife, Pauline. Um, for uh, coming along and quote murdering his first marriage. I mean, he said that she came in and she. Um, this is you know his me paraphrasing his language. This isn't my interpretation of his yeah, events yeah. Uh, of events. I mean, he said that she came in, she befriended Hadley to get proximity to him, and then you know slowly but determinedly seduced him. And that's kind of been the party line about poor old Pauline too for years. Um, you know, I mean Carlos Baker, who is you know Hemingway's first major biographer even referred to her at one point i think as a determined terrier um and i I couldn't i couldn't believe that it was so sexist so i actually um i was i was really interested in pauline when i was um doing research and i was trying to figure out more uh, well first of all it takes two to you know get to be involved in a successful seduction you know so hemingway obviously played a part and i i went back and i looked at her as a, a pauline as a journalist and you know in many ways she she was she could do things not just financially that Hadley couldn't for for Hemingway's career, but she she was a colleague also. I mean, she was an important Vogue writer at the time. She was covering the post war scene. I mean, this was this was it sounds you know more frivolous than his war reporting at the time, but I mean, it, fashion was a big story and it was a big business. And she worked hard and she was a good writer. I went back and I looked at all of her stuff from the, from that period of time, and she was a colleague. You know, so all of a sudden he has access to a person who, you know, can actually give him constructive real advice on his manuscripts. We know that he consulted with her on edits to Sun Also Rises. So, I mean, there's, um, from, from my point of view, there's actually evidence that they were, they were professional comrades as well as him just, um, you know, wafting over to her because she could support him at a time when Hadley's means were reduced. You know, that said, you know, Hadley, um, Hadley was frumpy, Pauline was glamorous, uh, and Hemingway at that time was moving into a more glamorous phase of his own life, and, you know, he was all about the narrative, so, like, let's shift out the problematic character and bring in the one that, that solves the problem. Yeah. So, it's, it, whenever I talk to somebody who's done a book that's this research-heavy, a biography, 
something that it requires, you know, uh, lots of library time, lots yeah. of sifting through papers, lots of deep research. Yeah. It seems extremely daunting to me. Where do you start? Like how you, you, you had, you said earlier that Lady Duff was kind of the, the point of entry for you yeah. into this story. Yeah. So you, you, you were fixed on her. You were, you were fascinated by her and by her characterization and son as Lady Brett. Mm-hmm. And then, and then what, what does day one look like on a project like this? Um, day one involves a lot of panic and wine, <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, procrastination, a lot of woe, a lot of, can I, you know, can I give this advance back? Yeah. Um, so you had written that you did the proposal and then got the, yeah, advance. we sold the book on proposal. Yeah. And so then I, I, I actually, I mean, I knew how much was out there that I, but I didn't realize how much. And like, once I started to see, I knew an avalanche was coming, but when I saw how tall that avalanche was, it was just like just get your shovel, like, you know, you steal your shoulders and just, you know, start digging, start digging, start digging, start digging. And I, 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 you know, constantly panicked. I mean, just the correspondence alone was like just staggering. Hundreds um, of thousands of words. Oh, easily. And, you know, in our, I mean, a lot of it has been, um, anthologized, but a lot of it hasn't. And we're not just talking about Hemingway's correspondence. I mean, there are so many people in this book. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, we had to be, my editor and I had to be really careful about how we presented it because you could have needed, you know, a flow chart at, you know, at certain points. Um, I was really lucky. Um, I, I now live in Los Angeles, but when I wrote this book, I lived in New York City. Princeton University, which is about an hour out of the city, um, had formidable archives everything i needed for the most part was there they had the archives for charles scribner's sons which was hemingway's and, and fitzgerald's publisher um fitzgerald's archive was there sylvia beach's archive is there i'm now her literary executor um oh wow and uh who else carlos baker what does that mean you're her literary executor uh, it means that people who need permissions and stuff have to go through me oh it's a long weird story um but so all of that material was an hour away. I was commuting to Princeton for, for a long time. But I mean, there were lovely aspects of the research also. And, you know, I was reading a lot of Lost Generation memoir. And, you know, I don't know how I could have done this before Amazon because, you know, you can find, you know, these rare and used books and all the stuff I was looking for was like one cent, you know, these crumbling old biographies that nobody's thought about for years or, or memoirs or letter collections. So I, I built up a personal library of probably 400 books. Wow. Um, and then I also, I mean, there's an interview component to this too. I interviewed dozens of Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Scribner descendants, people who had known him, experts in various fields. Um, so I had two research assistants, um, both of whom were young uh, female journalists. One of them is my research, uh, my researcher at Vanity Fair. You write for Vanity Fair? Yes. Like a regular contributor? Yes. And this actually, the, the whole book actually started out as a possible idea for an article for Vanity Fair, and then we realized it was a much bigger, a much bigger um, scope. Um, and then the other girl was a young um, political reporter from CNN in her 20s. And um, I just, I love, I mean, these girls helped me track down, you know, anybody I needed to speak to. I mean, they never came back without a document. They never came back without a phone number. It was really hard to find some of these people. Um, was there an interview that you find particular that you found particularly memorable or helpful or both like somebody who really brought to light brand new things or somebody who helped put things into context for you in a way that they hadn't previously? Well, I mean, yeah, there, I mean, there were four, four people. I mean, one of them was, um, Hemingway's sole surviving son, Patrick Hemingway, who, um, gave a lot of really great insights into his father's character and how his mind worked. I mean, he was amazing and he's hard to get to. It took me. 
I think, 12, 13, 14 months to get a yes from him, and I had to circumvent the publishers who just weren't putting my requests through to him. And then he um, he stepped forward and gave me two really wonderful interviews, and I'm pitifully in, grateful In person to him. or phone? Phone. Okay. He, yeah, he lives in... Um, where does he live? Is this Florida? No, it's in... Uh, Boulder, maybe. Okay. I used to live in Boulder. Montana. He lives in Montana. In Montana. Sorry. Um, And then uh, Valerie Hemingway, who had been Hemingway's assistant during the final years of his life and then became his daughter-in-law after um, Hemingway's death. Um, She had um, organized all the papers for his estate, and she just knew everything. She knew everything. Charles Scribner III, who was the the last um, Scribner to help run um, Scribner's, the Hemingway and Fitzgerald's publishers. I mean, his institutional knowledge was incredible, and he's just a totally charismatic guy also and wonderful um, to spend time with. And so he was in New York, and we had a lot of lunches, and he would even come with me to the Scribner archives at Princeton sometimes. Um, And then Hotchner, you know, who A.E. Hotchner, who was a friend of Hemingway's, he's a contentious figure. People have very mixed feelings about him in the Hemingway community. Um, But the bottom line is that he spent probably cumulatively years in Hemingway's presence and um, as the Hemingway Society. Late in life. Yeah, la- later in life, in, in the last decade of Hemingway's life. What's um, the contentiousness with H- Hotchner in the Hemingway community? What are the um, like, people, what are, like, is it family or other other historians or something? I, I mean, anybody who's in the, in the community, whether it's family or a biographer, anybody who, I mean, writers, like Joan Didion wrote like a quite a cruel assessment of him in the New Yorker once. I mean, they just think that he was very psychophantic and um, took advantage of his friendship with Hemingway to, you know, leverage work for himself, to just insinuate himself. I mean, somebody referred to him once as an ashtray carrier. I mean, it, there's there have been very unflattering portrayals of him. Um, but the bottom line is that he, he did spend time with him. He knew the man. Um, and uh, whether you think he's exploitive or not, he does have insights into his characters. And I had to um, wangle an interview with him when I actually Gay Talese, the writer, had to intervene on my behalf to, to get that interview underway and then he gave me a good four hours um, and it was some very candid stuff um, so yeah, a lot of people who were really central to Hemingway's life helped me and this was a, a topic, I mean I, there, was, there was zero nepotism in terms of my um, research. I had no access to this community before I began this story. I mean, I just literally had to like keep selling the project, selling, you know, integrity of previous work that I had done, um, you know, sell the integrity of the intention of the book. And um, I was really lucky because these people responded. And these are some of the most, you know, hunted people on on the planet because everybody's still obsessed with Hemingway. All Um, these years later, he still sells books. People still are fascinated with him. He's still a primary figure in a lot of literary imaginations. I mean, I would argue that he's one of America's most successful exports of all time. Coca-Cola. Yeah. You know, Ford, Hemingway. Yeah. He's an institution. I mean, he's instantly recognizable in most places. Yeah. I mean, he's even been used in ad campaigns, um, you know, where his name isn't even run across his image. It's just assumed that everybody on the planet knows who, who he is. And it's like this, like the, something about like the grizzled, bearded, masculine writer archetype. Yeah. That's him. I mean, he's like, he's the originator of that entire thing. Yeah. I mean, think about how many, you know, writers tried to model themselves, um, you know, on Hemingway, Norman Mailer even had four wives for God's sake, like Hemingway, <laughs> you know? So, um, I mean, I think that he, he became the, the, 
the standard to which many people aspired and also the standard against which many people tried to define themselves. But who else has that level of influence? Like not even Shakespeare. I mean, who? Yeah. I mean, the, the editor-in-chief of the Paris Review told me that half of the manuscripts that land on his desk today still bear the influence of Hemingway, and some of it is just, you know, really um, patent imitation. Well, and it's like because it's like that, uh, like Raymond Carver, I guess, who is probably also a descendant of Hemingway, to say you know, say the least. But that style of writing tricks you into thinking you can do it. So it's it's catnip for the aspiring writer. Well, you have you know, uh, Joan Didion has a has an essay once where she's talking about reading the opening uh, paragraph of A Farewell to Arms and studying and studying and studying it and trying to figure out what makes it work and in and, and all of its simplicity. And um, I mean. It's it's really it's hard to do it, and you know as as we were talking about earlier, a lot of people had been trying to do it before Hemingway broke through, and they weren't able to do it. And then people who come after him are all trying to do it in a certain way, and they can't do it. So he was just wired really specifically. Mm. His and mother he, was like an opera singer, wasn't she a musician? She had been an aspiring opera singer, um, and uh, the career had not come to fruition. Apparently, she had some kind of a an eye defect or something. I couldn't stand the bright lights on a stage. Okay. Um, but so she was um, unfulfilled talent. Yeah. But there, I mean, the, the reason I bring her up, um, I mean, there's a whole r- range of reasons to bring her up because he had an incredibly contentious relationship with his mom. Yeah. But th- there's a definite musicality to Hemingway's prose style. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then there's also, uh, and he says this himself, it's well documented, you know, it's something about the visual arts. He was a very... Um, he was a big fan of painting. He would go yeah. study paintings, and when you Cezanne. yeah, Cezanne. Yeah. So when you yeah. re, like the landscapes, when you read the opening pages of Farewell to Arms, for example, mm-hmm. you can really see how he was building a landscape, uh, and might have been. You can almost see the direct line between yeah. painting of the time and, and absolutely what he was doing. And you see that in The Sun Also Rises too, and that's the first time that he's really showcasing that in in novel form. Also, I mean, when he's describing you know the Spanish countryside uh, or the Basque countryside. Um, I mean, you, you can almost see the brushstrokes of Cezanne. And, you know, Hemingway would later say that he would stand in front of the paintings and just learn and learn and learn from them. And he couldn't articulate what he was learning from them, but um, but he was. And, you know, then he, there was one you know, sort of hokey line uh, where he says, besides it was secret anyway, he couldn't have artic- he wouldn't want, he wouldn't tell you what he had learned if um, if he could articulate right, it. Right, right. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, he – and, you know, musicality was important, and that's something that Ezra Pound taught also. Ezra Pound, the poet, who had become one of Hemingway's early Paris mentors. I mean, in, um, rhythm, musicality of language, um, imagism, it was all, you know, extremely important and influential. And so, you know, Hemingway came into the writing game in Paris, you know, knowing what he wanted to achieve, but when he realized how – conscious of all these things he was going to have to be he he saw that it was going to be tough work and he writes this letter at one point to Gertrude Stein and he says my god you know writing is so hard since I met you it used to be so easy and he complains about you know having almost crippling writer's block um you know where it would take a whole morning to get a sentence or a paragraph out which is makes the writing of the sun also rises which happened in a six-week sprint once he had the material and he really knew innately his style um it makes it all the more exceptional yeah I remember, too, like there's some sort of anecdote where he was showing her some of his early fiction not long after he got to Paris, and she read it, and she was like, that's good. Now start over from the beginning, and this time concentrate. Yes, <laughs> yes. I'm sure that was thrilling advice yeah. to receive. But probably good advice. I yeah, mean, well, he, had, he ended up having to start over whether he wanted to or not. He showed her a starter novel that he had been working on, and then um, Hadley um, diligently lost the novel and its carbon copies in a, on a train. Um, so... Gertrude Stein and Fate and Hadley all contrived to to make him start from scratch. Wow. 
Well, it's a fascinating story. I commend you on it because, you know, like we were talking about at the top, it's, it's a, there's a lot of books out there on Hemingway and you managed to unearth some new stuff. And uh, I just congratulate you on it. I wish you well on whatever's next. Do you have? Thank you. Do you have another book in the works, or is are you going to take a break? <laughs> uh, I do. I know what I'm working on next, and I'm also now that I'm in Los Angeles, I'm going to reward myself with a, yes. with a screenplay. Okay. Will you say what it is next, or is it under wraps? Um, it's sort of under wraps, but I'll I'll say that it's um, about a similarly charismatic period of time in American history, 20th century history, um, and uh, revolving around one important uh charismatic american personality okay that's very vague but very <laughs> but very uh enticing thanks man and what is uh and then leslie mm bloom what do the yes. m stand for oh it's so humiliating i'm a child of the 70s the, the first the first name is melissa and then the second is margarita because that's the reason i was conceived my parents were drinking margaritas on a shag carpet in front of a <laughs> fireplace and then i emerged nine months later Wow. Looking querulous. That's a, that's a better story than I was expecting. Mm. I'm glad I asked. Yeah. Well, it was such a pleasure talking with you, and uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. Okay, guys, there you go. That's Leslie M.M. Bloom. Her book is called Everybody Behaves Badly. It's available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. You can find Leslie online at lesliemmbloom.com. She's also on Twitter. Her handle over there is at lesliemmbloom. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. It's the best way to listen. Go get the app. Get it on your device. Get the app wherever you get your apps. The app is free. You get the most recent 50 episodes for free. You can uh, download episodes to listen to while you're offline. New episodes automatically upload. It's all very easy to do. And then if you want to get at the, the full archives... If you want access to everything more than 400 episodes and counting, you just sign up for an Other People premium subscription. It costs 75 cents a month. 75 cents a month gets you access to everything. Anywhere you go at your fingertips, it's a great way to support the show. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. So, a uh, fun book to read. I'm a fan of uh, that whole period. It's a fun, it's a fun like uh, period of time to dip back into every once in a while as a writer. It's also a little bit infuriating. Cheap to live in Paris. Everybody's tortured and drunk. Post-war. Books are at the center of culture. They really matter. Like crowds show up. When, like, trains pull in with, like, loads of books. Do you know what I'm talking about? Please remember that uh, Gauguin's abandoned wife said, quote, His ferocious egoism revolts me every time I think of it. And that Mark Twain once said of Jane Austen, quote, It seems a great pity that they allowed her to die a natural death. That's it for now. Uh, thanks again to Leslie M.M. Bloom for coming over, sitting down. One of my final uh, garage guests on a warm summer day. She was kind enough to come over here and talk to me about Ernest Hemingway and uh, the book that she's written. It's a big achievement. All that research, getting all the details right, doing all those interviews, putting it all together, and then writing it uh, with a novelistic flair. It's a great read. Thanks to you guys for listening. As always, I appreciate it. And I will be back next week with another conversation with another uh, writerly human being. 
Somebody who's written something. I think. I have four bottles of water on my desk. <laughs> if you could see me now, I'm very shiny. It does, it feels sauna-like. It's like I'm in a sauna. Podcasting. <laughs>